You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your shocking host, Abraham. Oh, no. And I will be your more rewarding host, Shane. I set it up so that you could you could take that role. I knew you'd want to. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's so sweet. <laughs> so today we are going to have our our first discussion about one of the arguments that people have made with respect to the controversy around ABA as being inappropriate for application for individuals who are neurodiverse. And if you're joining us for the first time. Welcome. Mm -hmm. We are a psychology podcast. We like to tackle all kinds of issues. Lately, we have been on a journey where we're starting a journey. This is actually only the the second step of this journey. Yeah. Of many. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. And on this journey, we are going to every week for the next several weeks, take one argument and we're going to break it down. We're going to state what the argument is saying. We're going to do so charitably. We're going to do so with respect and avoid setting up any straw man as much as possible. And then we're going to discuss that. We're going to, you know, offer our views on on how to address that and I'm going to say this probably every time but we are not representing any particular group, agency, board or anything like that. This is just just our opinions of the people who are working on this podcast. Yep, 100% support and back that statement because the thing is is this is this is a conversation that is going to ruffle many feathers on every side of the conversation and so we just want to be clear that like what we're trying to do is we're trying to be charitable to every side and really have the conversation and and really discuss the nuance of these arguments and really kind of get into the minutia of it i mean that's been the that's been the value of the podcast since the beginning it's like we take a topic we take a subject we try to present every side of it and really you know, just present as much information as we can so that you can walk away and make your own decision. But that's really the goal here today. And sometimes there's like nothing good to say about it. You know, I think like conversion therapy, which is relevant to some of the discussions we'll be getting into. Yeah. It was like, that's a hard no, that we, there is nothing nice to say about this. This is a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. There's been a couple where we've been like, yeah, syphilis, don't get it. Yeah, like we're not like there's <laughs> never a time where we're like, hard we, stance. <laughs> yeah, we took a hard stance. We don't support people getting syphilis. Yeah, there are some hard no's, but there's sometimes like even those things, those conversations that are a little bit more difficult, it's not as simple as saying yes or no. And I think right. that this is one of those conversations. This is one of those where we want to be as fair to both sides as we possibly can. All sides. What There might be more than two. Yeah. I also want to say. The intention of the structure of our release for these is that we would release one a week and then we will actually wait to record the next one so that we have an opportunity for people to get in contact with us with feedback about their thoughts and experiences with what we were talking about. And that might shape and guide the discussion as it continues to evolve. Now, at the time that we're recording this discussion, the very first one has not yet been published. So we won't have any feedback to offer for that one that people may have written in about. But for the next episode that we record in the series of discussions, we will have had an opportunity to get feedback from the very first one. And it'll always be just that little weak buffer between when we get the feedback and what we've already recorded. Yep, absolutely. 100%. So to recap a little bit, the discussion that we had to begin with, we essentially laid out the foundations for describing what ABA is, stands for Applied Behavior Analysis, for those of you who don't know. Mm -hmm. 
And what the argument that's being made here essentially breaks down into as far as sort of what the the points are being made. Mm -hmm. And then who are the people who are making these arguments? That's sort of essentially what our first discussion entailed. So we're not going to rehash that specifically. If you're just joining us now and you like to go and you're not, you feel like you're missing that context, I would strongly recommend that you check out that discussion just because it's going to help set the foundation. And if we try and rehash everything we've done every time that we have these, I think it'll be tough to, to have a cohesive argument without it sounding like just like previously on and then 10 minutes, yeah. you know, and yeah, counting. exactly. Yeah, we can't we can't bring up every single point. And I think and I think at the same time, I think that can be distracting. So like the goal, the goal here is to actually give you some space to be able to listen to this argument, listen to the sides of it and, and be able to kind of like absorb that information in kind of a compartmentalized way so that there's no distractors that are kind of taking you out of the argument. We want you to have time with this one. Yes, absolutely. So, Shane, are you ready? Are you ready to jump in? <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead. Let's do it. All right. Perfect. So the first argument that we're going to tackle today that I saw in a few different places is the fact that applied behavior analysis, ABA, has not always used positive reinforcement as, as one of the methods for changing and teaching, changing behavior and, and teaching, and still uses too much negative reinforcement and punishment today. So that's the main argument. Yep. There, there has been historically too much use of punishment and not enough or not a single reliance on positive reinforcement. And there maybe is still too much punishment and negative reinforcement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Does that sound cogent? Yeah. 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 That, that's That seems like it kind of sums up the theme of this argument. Yeah. Okay, great. So to kind of dig into this and kind of maybe unpack this a little bit, as far as we're able to find, as far as the argument goes, it's essentially that one ABA used to use a lot more verses and punishments as part of like a treatment package and two that it still does just not as obviously. So then the hypothesis of the argument then would be that these aversives lead to higher anxiety, create fear, make the individual feel uncomfortable with the therapist. They don't communicate anything to the individual when we use those tools or when those tools are used, I should say, and fail to understand what the behavior was occurring in the first place. Like what is the actual behavior that was going on? So that's a lot to unpack within that, but that's really kind of the primary stuff that's coming out of that discussion. And furthermore, in these spaces where you are already dealing with someone you're dealing with the issue that someone who is trying to control the behavior of another person and the fact that they're using aversives such as punishments and that sort of thing only makes it more cruel and intolerable. Mm -hmm. And so before we get into any discussion about how to address this, I just want to be as clear as possible that this is essentially what the argument is stating here mm -hmm. is that these punishments are being used. They're problematic. They're problematic for the person who is on the receiving end of that in particular. And that makes it difficult to have an effective therapeutic environment for this neurodiverse individual who has been sort of subjected to the experience of this ABA therapist. Does that sound like I'm summarizing that? Yeah, I think that summarizes that well. All right. So if we've got that part right, and again, I'm really trying not to set up any kind of straw man at all, but if we're understanding that that is essentially the argument about one of the problems that people have with ABA or one of the issues that has come up, then let's go ahead and discuss how we would respond to that being professionals who worked either in or adjacent to this field. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I think that's fair. Let's go ahead. Perfect. So the first thing I want to say is that this is a legitimate concern. Yeah. And just thinking about if my loved one was being subjected to cruel, painful, 
unpleasant treatments where they were clearly un- unhappy, I would definitely fight to have them removed from that situation. And I just want to make really clear, like this, it is perfectly understandable that you would be concerned about that experience that they're having. So let's break down what's going on here. Yeah. So the first part, kind of look at this. Yes. Like behavior analysis did used to use a lot more aversives. I mean, this was something that was pretty ever present when you go look at some of the older research. And this is the thing is like there at the time, there was a lack of research with other approaches and aversives. They work. If aversives didn't work in our natural lives, then we would end up not surviving as a species. Like, you know, if, if punishers didn't work in our in our everyday lives, like you think about the only reason you can eat lobster today is because somebody figured out how to cook it after they got sick the first time they cooked it the wrong way. Right. That's an aversive. So they figured out that you can't eat it a certain way. You have to prepare it. And I know it's kind of a silly example, but. That kind of goes to show like why you don't touch a hot stove or why you avoid dark alleys, because there's been some kind of history of punishment that's gone along with that. That's actually helped you survive. So so to kind of note this and really to kind of pin this down, aversives are present in our daily lives and behavior analysis used to use a lot more aversives. There was a lack of those other approaches like about reinforcement. There was a lack of better treatments and better options and aversives at the time they work and they work quickly. Right. And you see immediate, I mean, immediate changes in behavior, especially if something is aversive enough, you see an immediate change in behavior. Yes, it's very fast. And to be clear, we're not defending the fact that aversives were used. We're just sort of trying to explain the context in which they were used and why people were using them a lot in the past and why they might be tempted to use them now. Yeah. And if you walk into most households in the United States, like aversives, the punishments being told no, having privileges taken away, having restrictions placed on kids is ubiquitous. You will be yeah. hard pressed to find a household in which the, those are not being used right. deliberately as part of raising a kid. And so, again, I'm not saying that we're we're defending this as a practice. I'm just saying like this is this is a reality for life is that aversives are around us. And before we had better strategies for how to address behavior particularly back when when ABA was getting started, we had that like because, as you said, it's super effective. Understanding that, understanding that this is that the idea of aversives and punishment exists everywhere is really important for this context. And I think really important for this argument. Now, going back into I mean, you could look at the history of psychology. You could look at the history of the medical field. You could look at the history of literally any practice and find the presence of some type of aversive in those spaces. Yeah. That history, and and I want to be really clear, that history is not unique to behavior analysis. That history is present for other helping professions in other fields. Yeah. Less systematically used, I think, most a a lot of the time. But yeah. So to add to the fact that aversives do work. And so, again, this is part of the reason people were interested in using them. And before there was any kind of quality control or training standards, People who are not behavior analysts started learning how behavior change could be achieved. And with no regulations whatsoever, there were people who opened these massive treatment centers, which used horrifically cruel tactics to depressing effects. And we covered some of this in our episode, What is Ethics? Yeah. That was in like our first hundred episodes or so a long time ago. Yeah. And they called their services behavior analysis interventions, but these were not trained behavior analysts. It'd be like if I watched a documentary about dentistry and then opened my own dentist office yeah. where I subsequently caused several oral health problems 
And then everyone concluded that dentists are evil and dangerous, right? In that situation, I wouldn't actually be a dentist. So it doesn't represent dentistry. And in the same way, these people who are opening these treatment centers and were using just really gross, aversive methods, they weren't behavior analysts claiming to do behavior analysis and causing harm because anybody could say they were a behavior analyst and do whatever they wanted at the time. Yeah. And that's why we had to slap some regulating bodies in place to stop that kind of thing from happening. And just to kind of like illustrate like what, what Abraham is talking about here with this like level of training, I want to say I'm almost positive. It was what, like a two day training course, maybe if that, yeah, it was like a workshop. Yeah. Like yeah, a, four hours. Yeah. It was not sufficient. And in arguably at the time too, it wasn't sufficient because there wasn't enough research to do better. Right. But at the same time, this is a moment in time. Okay. And unfortunately it wasn't a great moment. And it's important to recognize that. And I think that's why we want to talk about it. We want to recognize that that was not a great time for the field. And I don't know if I touch on this later, but there were also trained behavioral analysts who use aversives, not like that, but they would use often small things like taking away a thing that you had as a form of aversive, or we may as well just acknowledge the thing that happened. There would be a knee slap, yep. just like a whack on the, on the knee as a use of an aversive. And those were trained behavior analysts yeah. using those sometimes. So like like I said, this was before we had better research and better methods back then. And it, not that that makes it okay then. It just like I understand why they did it because they didn't they didn't know better. Right. And now we know better. Right, right, right. And arguably, I, I mean, I've heard worse things happen, like some pretty and I don't say I don't want to say worse. I've heard some pretty horrible things happening in like Catholic schools with nuns whacking people's knuckles with rulers too so like so again going back to the idea of like those types of things being ever present it's not just in behavior analysis now at the time there were a few strategies that people had and they were just sort of trying to figure out what to do with people who were neurodiverse and often displayed confusing and often severely destructive behavior towards themselves and others the option across the spectrum at the time tended to include things like lobotomies which we covered in an episode which not great yeah at all sedation and sometimes extreme sedation where there's no quality of life at all yep medical coma sort of thing yeah essentially like somebody's just like living in a fog forever imprisonment sterilization or hospitalization at which time usually meant sedation imprisonment sterilization and isolation including 24-hour restraints like four-point restraints to beds and things like that yeah so at the time there was not a lot of great options for these types of treatments yeah the point really is no one really knew what to do they didn't know what to do with these people and there were advocates in their corner that were real champions of the of the rights and well-being of those and they did help turn the tide in addition but nobody really knew what they were doing there were these small pockets of people with compassionate treatment ideas although the the efficacy of the treatment was often questionable they at least you know were oriented toward a compassionate approach and then you know, compared to the alternatives, many behavior analysts felt that some aversives, such as occasional electric shocks, slaps, physical restraints, they were kinder than the alternative, isolation, long-term sedation, sterilization, that sort of thing. Yeah. And we're not making excuses for them, but we are trying to create the context around the history in which this took place to really understand, like, everybody used punishment so much more than they do now. And even it's very ubiquitous now. Right. But back in the day, every field, every family, everybody thought that punishment was the way to go because it, it works like it's effective. And behavior analysts felt like we're going to use like us, a, a lot of them, not, not all of them, but 
a, the, a scaled down systematic really like i guess what they would maybe think of at the time humane approach to doing this because the alternative to that is so much worse I think this is really important as we start looking at that, because uh, like you mentioned, there were advocates and there were researchers and there were scientists who were also striving to do better. Yeah. So with that kind of mentality and that perspective, it didn't take long for this change to start taking place, like where people started really advocating for better ways to work on these concerns. And so you started seeing alternative measures and alternative methods start to kind of develop, right? And so things like changing the environment so that the behavior was less likely to occur, so that there was no need to use aversives. Yeah. If the behavior wasn't necessary, then there was no need to reduce that behavior in some kind of other method. You know, behavior analysts started looking at how what the cause of the behavior was and started using a whole lot of interventions using reinforcement instead, which is far safer, which is far more humane, and which is actually kind of more in line with what's going on today. Yeah. And so by about 1968, Restraints and punishments were already starting to be used less frequently, and by the time you get to about the, the early 80s, what people think of as more or less contemporary ABA, I think, is sort of, I feel like there was a, a major turning point that happened there. Mm-hmm. Using punishment became far and away the least common way of addressing behavior. Yeah. Really shifted completely at that point to a set of very specific techniques used to address behaviors, even severe behaviors, even dangerous behaviors that didn't need to rely on those kinds of interventions. Just to kind of illustrate this even more and distill it down for folks, when this shift started happening, there was a historical precedent for treating problem behavior based on what it looked like. Yeah. So if somebody was gouging their eye out, if somebody was pulling their teeth out, if somebody was banging their head, they would just throw a whole lot of reinforcement at behaviors that weren't occur- that weren't those things. And then throwing a whole lot of punishment at those behaviors when those types of behaviors would occur. So like they, that's kind of what it would look like. And it was based on the shape or the look of the behavior. And then when they started looking at the outcome of the behavior or the result of the behavior, they were able to do better by teaching skills that were going to get that same outcome, but in a safer way. That's when reinforcement started really kind of like shifting and moving into a space where it's like a way, it was just a way better way to approach it and teach behaviors that were missing from that person's skills. That was a major cultural shift for the field and actually is kind of what you see today is that it's that's kind of the current culture of behavior analytic work where we're not treating the look of the behavior. We're treating the outcome of the behavior and making it so that outcome is easier and safer for that person to contact. The problem isn't with the reinforcer is something I always like to say. The problem is with how the reinforcer is being obtained. Yeah. And so like, we want you to have the thing that you want. And there's like a safer, easier way to get it than destroying something or destroying yourself or destroying another person. Like we could teach you to just ask for it, for example. Yeah. And a lot of these people, their language was often impacted to the point where they didn't know how to just ask for what they needed. Yeah. Or couldn't. Yeah. They couldn't. They, they couldn't ask for what they needed. They wouldn't even be, they wouldn't even necessarily know to point at a thing that they might need. And so, it was really revolutionary to find a way to figure out sort of what, why is this behavior taking place now? How can we help you get the thing that you need? How can we help you communicate your needs in a more effective way? Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of illustrate this a little bit more, the extent of aversives going back to the original argument and the idea that aversives are used, they're very rarely, rarely used in modern practice. I, I can tell you as a practitioner, I cannot think of a time that I've ever actively programmed for aversives in a, in a procedure. Like it's not something that 
is part of my repertoire. It's not something that we actively seek. It's not something that's come up. Usually we try to seek all those more humane and alternative, like those, those least restrictive alternatives because the science says it's just better to do it that way anyway, to do it with reinforcers and, and it doesn't damage rapport. It doesn't damage, it doesn't cause fear, anxiety, and all those things that, that are legitimate concerns that we brought up in the beginning. And you know, when behavior analysts talk about this idea of punishment, it's often in a philosophical sense or a conceptual sense. Yeah. We're not talking about it in a practical or an applicable sense. We're not talking about, we might describe like, oh, this might have been how this behavior got shaped up. But a lot of times when you look at treatment plans from behavior analysts who are practicing good ethical behavior analysis, you're not seeing these types of things built into programming unless it's just seriously, absolutely necessary. And even then it's still of it, it. That takes, I mean, you have to go through plans a through double Z before you even really get there. Right. It takes a lot to get there now, just to kind of like discuss that a little bit more. We're not going to get too heavy into the idea of what punishment actually is. We did do a, an episode on punishment to kind of elaborate on that. So we recommend going and listening to that just to kind of get a feel for what the conceptual idea and the philosophical idea of, of what punishment is. But just to kind of illustrate again today in today's practice, it is not something that is is ever present. It is not something that is actively sought out. It's not something that is actively programmed or built into any of the treatment programs or most of the treatment programs that you'll see. I think you uh, wrote the notes for that punishment episode. Yeah, I did. Yeah, okay, I think that was yeah. like one of the first ones I wrote notes for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a while ago, but I, I feel like I remember that you, you had taken the lead on that one. Yeah, that was a fun one. All right. So we've been talking about punishment this entire time, but there's also this negative reinforcement thing. So we're not really going to dive into negative reinforcement. It's useful to give just a quick description of it and how it's used. And so a, a way that I often help try and get people's heads wrapped around this, if they're not already part of the field or they're, they're not necessarily familiar with these terms, another name you can use for negative reinforcement is relief. Mm -hmm. Negative reinforcement means getting out of something you don't like or avoiding something you don't like or something like that. Yeah. And our world is a negative reinforcement world. That is to say, we spend a lot, if not most of our time, trying to get out of or avoid things we don't like. You know the feeling you get when you blow your nose that's runny and you feel the relief that you can like breathe better and it's clearer? Yeah. That's negative reinforcement. When you scratch an itch, that's negative reinforcement. Right. When you catch something from falling and breaking and you are able to prevent it. Like you just happen to reach over and, and stop it before it falls off the table or whatever. That's negative reinforcement. Right. So negative reinforcement is all around us. Now, the second point here is even though we all love this feeling of negative reinforcement in order to make it work, you have to have something to escape or avoid, which means something unpleasant. Thus behavior analysts don't tend to create these aversive scenarios in which negative reinforcement would be relevant. At least we, we, I mean, we're not trying to set that up. Instead, we can seize an opportunity when negative reinforcement is available and then teach the individual who we're working with how to get out of that unpleasant situation. So we might capitalize on the fact that it's there, but we're not generally going to program for the opportunity for negative reinforcement right. in any particular way. We're not going to show up and produce something that's super aversive and be like, okay, now ask to get away from this. Like, that's not... That's not what that looks like. 
And I can give a perfect example of this. I worked with a learner who required a CPAP device because they had sleep apnea and the machine itself is it was was aversive to them. They were not happy with this 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 machine. They did not mm-hmm. like this machine. They wanted to avoid it at all costs because it was uncomfortable. And if you've ever yeah. worn a CPAP device, it's a mask that fits over your nose and mouth and, and basically forces you to breathe. I mean, it's not a, it's not a comfortable space to be in. So when we worked with this learner, because at this time. Sleep apnea for this person was a life health threat. Like it was a risk to this person's life to not Mm -hmm. use this device. And this person was not super keen on exercising a whole lot. And and it was, (laughs) it was very difficult. You know, I mean, this person was a large person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we had to do something to work with them to keep them alive. And so a lot of our work was making that machine less aversive. It wasn't presenting the machine and making him tolerate it. It was starting to pair reinforcers with this machine and make this machine less aversive and and less bad. The minute that the guy saw the machine and he's like, I don't want to see it, we would remove it. Oh yeah. You know what? You don't have to see it today. That's totally cool. And we would work on that and start building up that for a while until he would wear the machine and he was safe. But it was never us presenting the machine being like, you need to wear this and suck it up. It was never, never that circumstance. As a matter of fact, by the time we were done working with him, he would put the mask on and he'd be like, I'm Bane, you're Batman. I'm going to whoop you. Please don't, (laughs) please don't whoop me. I don't want to get hit. You know, because he was a, he was a big guy himself, but just to kind of illustrate, like, you know, that wasn't us making it so that it was so aversive that negative reinforcement was required. It was us taking something that was previously identified as aversive and trying to change the context and the learning history around it. I will add that I feel like I can hear people now saying, yeah, but. Abraham and Shane, like what about functional analyses or FAs? Mm -hmm. And those are an assessment tool that do have a condition in which we manufacture negative reinforcement by creating a situation that is unpleasant. That's not actually part of a treatment. That's part of an assessment. And the, the point of that is to determine if that is the thing that is why the behavior is occurring. Right. It's usually a sort of very small scale, low impact sort of things. And we've also found ways of like, if this is really problematic for the individual, then what we'll do is we'll do sort of an analog of that, something that's a little less intense for them so that it's it's safer and easier for them to tolerate. So yes, you're right. That is something that exists as part of an assessment tool. It's how we are able to arrive at what is the outcome that they are, that they are really motivated for. And then we can use that to capitalize on, okay, now yeah. now that we're clear on why this is going on for you, we can teach you how to get out of the situation. But we're not teaching them how to get out of the situation in the FA. We're using the FA to try, or the functional analysis, we're using the functional analysis to try and identify, is this what's going on for you? So that when in the, in the outside of this context, when you're having these issues, we can teach you how to get out of them. I think another way to illustrate that, like that particular point, because you're right, like that's yes, that could be something that could be brought up as a point in an argument. But I would like to to add to that, that when you go to a doctor for an allergy test, right, that is essentially a functional analysis of the allergies that you're going to react to. They produce an antecedent. Your skin reacts to it. Now you have a consequence and now you know what the outcome is of contacting whatever that stimulus is. It's not comfortable. It's aversive. It's itchy. Right. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, like an allergy test does the same type of thing and it gives you what does it give you? It gives you a solution to a particular problem that you're testing for. 
and entails like specifically trying to provoke that reaction. Yeah, it's provoking a reaction so you know exactly what it is that's causing that reaction so that you can prevent the need for that reaction later. The other yeah, but that I think I hear in this is for those who <laughs> have thought about this, an academic environment is often one that is challenging. And when things are challenging, people try and get out of them. So when you're trying to teach a kid something, they are motivated to be like, I want to break from learning. I want to break from my math sheets. I want to break from whatever. And so when you're doing a lot of teaching, a lot of times one of the motivations that they'll work for or that they have, one of the motivations that they have is to take breaks, to get out of that environment. And it's because it's it's difficult, you know. And so the the point in that instance isn't let's make this aversive so that they can get out of it. The point is like we're really working as hard as we can to give you the tools you need to be successful. That requires teaching. Teaching can be hard. Learning can be difficult. So like we're going to acknowledge that part of us helping you is going to be uncomfortable. We'll give you a way to get out of this periodically so that you can right. take breaks and that sort of thing. I think that's exactly it. It's not us saying we're going to make this more uncomfortable for you so you can learn how to do this better. It's this is already uncomfortable for you. Let's try to make this less uncomfortable for you so you can be successful. Right. There is one more. Yeah, but that is echoing very loudly in my in my mind, if you will. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which is there is a place that is run by behavior analysts that uses electric shock as an aversive to change behavior. And this is a very unique situation. 99.9% of places where you have a behavior analyst working with individuals, they're not using any of any of this. There is a very specific singular example in which this is being used. And I, and I think that it is worth doing a really deep dive on that as a topic at some point. I think it's beyond the scope of this conversation today because it is it is so idiosyncratic to the circumstances of the people that are working, the people that are receiving those services, and the kinds of things that they've been through in the news and whatnot. I don't want to get into the weeds of that because I mean that that could be that could be a very in-depth discussion. And so I think the acknowledgement there is Yes, there are behavior analysts who use this still today. The number is vanishingly small relative to the overwhelming, I can very confidently say 99.9% .9 of the field, knowing that it's much higher than that of people who do right. not use aversives in this way. And this place treats a very particular type of patient with incredibly, incredibly severe and life-threatening where one one episode, one incident, one moment could be that person's life. So while I would say that we are in agreement, I, I mean, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, we're in agreement that should we be using shock to shock humans? Not a great, it's not a great thing. It's not a look. It is a point where it's the discussion itself is just, it's a very difficult conversation because the because there's not, again, a not a, a not a lot of alternatives that have been found to be useful at this time. Yeah. So, yeah, I personally am not a fan of the place and especially working with folks that have those types of behaviors. But I also can hear the arguments for. And again, we're trying to approach this argument as being charitable and presenting sides. And trying not to get too in our own opinions about it, but 
That one is a, that one's a heavy one. It's probably that one is probably worth its own episode. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I would love to to really do a deep dive on that at some point. It's it, there's a lot to unpack there, I think. And, and an interesting. Uh, I mean, ju- I mean, just fascinating historically, contemporarily. I think it's it's an interesting discussion. So, yeah. Anyway, I think we can hit our take homes here. And I think the, the main thing is I want to validate the experience that I would be very concerned about my loved one if I thought that they were suffering in a, in a situation where it was supposed to be therapeutic. Right. So I 100% agree with the, the concern that like aversives should be as avoided as possible in these settings. Yeah. And I'll leave it there for now because I think we got other points to hit. But so that that's, I think, one of my take homes. I would echo that take home point. And I would also say that in, in the spaces where behavior analysts practice, if aversives are something that is being used, it's likely they're missing something in their training or their repertoire. It's rare, but it is something that does exist. And, you know, just like every other field, just like every other practice, there's bad training, there's bad practitioners. And without getting into the not all behavior analyst argument, because that's not what I'm trying to do, it is very much so understanding that the culture of the field has moved so far away from aversives that if aversives are being used as a regular practice, there's a missing link in that person's training. There's a missing link in that person's experience, and there's a missing link in that person's actual clinical practice that needs to be filled. And as a scientific field, we tend to be self-correcting. So usually... In my experience, places like that, they get the attention that results in them changing their strategy. Yeah. Another take home point here is like reiterating the point that the field used aversives a lot before the field had other strategies for managing behavior, for helping to adjust behavior in one way or another, or manage some severe behavior, some severe experience, whatever it might be. Or even mild, honestly. Like I think they just didn't know. Yeah. All they knew was that aversives work and they worked really quickly. And anymore, that is extremely uncommon in the field. I would echo that sentiment as well. It is it is incredibly uncommon. And we've we've learned to do better. We've learned to do better over the decades. And and we will continue to learn to do better. And that's part of this conversation is we are continuing to learn to do better, but we have moved far and away from what you'll see in articles from the sixties and seventies. Perfect. Do you have anything else? I think that's a good place to end that one and kind of like give everybody some room to breathe on that. As always, I'd like to invite everybody who has some thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, please email us. Any long-form discussions we have, we'd prefer to have about this via email and not try and have a decontextualized back and forth where you have an audience on social media. Any quick comments you'd like to leave, feel free to post those on social media. But as far as like long responses, we're, we're going to would prefer to do that via email for this. But on that, I really would like to hear from everybody. Please let us know what, what your experiences are with, with punishment, with negative reinforcement. If you have some other things to weigh in about and, and respond to this, let us know. We're really trying to, as, as we've said so many times now, be diplomatic and, and take, you know, look at, look at this in a nuanced, careful way. And so we want to try and be accurate and fair, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and, you know, validate your experience. So thank you so much for listening and for bearing with us through this. And please reach out to us. Yeah. And Shane. Yeah. I have some listener mail. I would love to hear it. All right. So this one came from someone who signed off as Daggers. So I'm going to, I know, which is very cool. So I'm going to refer to this person as Daggers. They write in saying, 
Hey, a sex-positive feminist living in Portland here, just reaching out to the fellows who are so great to have the conversation about sex work. You did a damn fine job. Keep it up. Teach those other men to be more like like you, your pal, Daggers. <laughs> Thank you for that, Daggers. I, we yeah. were, you know, we were really, really proud of that episode. Like, I was really happy with how that one turned out. So Me too. It really means the world that, like, it actually, like, that, that social validity is really cool for us. So we appreciate that. I really appreciate the kind email and uh, and the kind words and and I'm I'm glad that it landed well because I did I also felt pretty good about that episode and it's nice to actually hear you know that uh, that landed well for other people yeah as well so I appreciate it thank you yeah wonderful thank you daggers we we hope to hear from you again soon yeah all right we have some recommendations. Okay, I'm going to recommend a soda. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Love soda. Soda rules. Yeah, there's this brand of soda that you'll find at sort of your health food store. It's called Zevia, and I believe it's because it's made with stevia. Ah, It's, it's sugar-free, zero calorie, but it tastes really good. And my favorite one that they make is a cream soda. Is just delicious. It's got that nice vanilla ness to it. Mm-hmm. So I, I just really like it, and it tastes really good. That's all, that's all <laughs> I, I like got. that. That's so nice and wholesome. So my my recommendation is not that at all. So <laughs> just a heads up. My recommendation is a book called The Hepatitis Bathtub and Other St- Stories. Yeah. I know. That's not a euphemism. There is a hepatitis bathtub in this book. Ooh. Yeah. And this is about, this is the the band's biography of the band No Effects. It is their story from the time they started up until just a few years ago, and it is harrowing, to say the least. There is a lot to unpack within that. It makes you think that, like, you know, like, if you ever read anything about, like, all the crazy adventures that Motley Crue went on, imagine that, but, like, more dingy and way more harrowing. Oh, man. It's pretty intense, but it's a really good read. It made me laugh. It made me cry. It made me angry at times. But it was done really, really well, and it made me respect that band even more than I already liked them. Like, I really liked them, but I really was like, wow, this band went through some stuff. Yeah, sounds sounds like it. Being peripherally familiar with them, not not <laughs> yeah. to the yeah the level that, uh, that you're at on the having read that book. But it does seem like they've um, they've had a journey. <laughs> That's a way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> I will say, and maybe this isn't fair, but I'm a little scared to read this. <laughs> well, just to kind of prime you, it starts off with somebody drinking human urine. So not making this easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty intense. It's pretty intense. It's honestly, though, like that's only a small portion. It's a great read. Like it is really one of my favorite books I've ever read. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you so much for recording with me today, Shane. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Daggers, for writing in and sending us that awesome uh, yes. email. If you would like to send us an awesome email, then we are happy to have those. If you'd like to tell us about your favorite sodas or punk band bio books, <laughs> happy to hear about those as well. You can reach us at info at www.podcast.com. We're on all the social media platforms. And if you haven't already, you should subscribe to this podcast so that you catch every one of our enthralling discussions and sometimes very somber discussions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's all I got. You have anything else? Nope, that's it. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts 
or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWDWWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O., Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.